Good morning, and happy fourth. I feel like I owe everybody, uh, everybody an apology uh, for the first couple songs up there were a doozy. Um, I forgot everything I was supposed to do. So I apologize, but it still sounded all right. You didn't see my mess-ups, right? Okay, if you didn't see it, the band did, I'm sure. Well, we are in Psalm 18 today. If you'll turn to Psalm 18, I don't know, you guys, I know I got some clock watchers out there. You probably said, well, this is run long. How long is he going to preach? <laughs> don't worry, it's been designed to fit the service, ladies and gentlemen, to fit the service. Psalm 18. We are celebrating the declaration, our declaration, our countries, of independence. And we're independent, basically, of British rule way back in the day. And what happened to our country is really two things. When we declared our independence, we declared that we're new, true, and that we're free. And I think everybody would agree with me on that. It was a new country, right? We're able to practice our religion. We're able to practice trade, industry, whatever. It was new, but it was also free of that rule. And thinking of Declaration of Independence, what it meant to our country, I couldn't help but think of the Declaration of Dependence that we have upon God. And that's the title of my message today, The Declaration of Dependence. It wasn't so much I wanted to play on words, it was the fact that the more I thought about how lucky we are, blessed we are, to be in a country where we can still meet when others can't, where we can still carry a Bible when others can't, where we can still pray in public places if we choose to when others can't, it made me realize how utterly dependent we are on everything in our lives and everything is directed right back to God. So we are fully dependent. So today, I want to look at a couple people in Scripture that have declared their dependence on God, and I want to talk about that. Let's look at the first three verses of Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my God and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now, this particular psalm, Psalm 18, it goes right along side by side with 2 Samuel chapter 22. And in that text in 2 Samuel, it is appropriately titled, David's song of deliverance. These are the words expressed by David when he was delivered, right, from the hand of all his enemies. And folks, this includes Saul, who pursued him fiercely. It is true that the literary style of this writing we are reading today is one of poetry. Let's not mistake that. We understand that the Psalms are poetry. But this is historical poetry. I need you to remember, remember this now. This is historical poetry. I know we have a lot of readers in this congregation. Oh, I know you well. And you guys love to read for pleasure. I don't get it, but you love to read for pleasure. And when one reads, the imagination kicks in, right? They, they read for pleasure. The imagination kicks in. They're painting pictures of what the characters might look like. You're painting pictures of what the settings or the locations 
may look like. You are, in essence, creating a picture when you are reading. And a lot of times, my book people tell me, oh, the book is so much better than the movie. And I agree with them because it's their imaginations who created the story as they read. Of course it's better than the movie, right? So we're going to do that today. I need everyone to attempt to place your God-given imaginations on high. Set it to 11 today. Because I want you to use these to create a picture of what David is truly trying to express in this text. A lot of times we read these words and we just kind of skim across. And that's really, yeah, God's my rock and he's my fortress. But let's look what this really means, especially in the life of David. Now the phrase, <clears throat> the phrasing that David is using here it's not just inventive, inventive words uh, to express religious thought or to express poetic emotion. It's not just that. There is a real historical background, real circumstances that David lived out as he applies metaphor after metaphor to describe all that the Lord was and had been to him during these times of real life distress. Please remember that. Because I want the imagery of these metaphors to take a whole new shape in your life. The first verse, I want to clear something up. The first verse to the psalm is not found in 2 Samuel 22. It appears to have been added later. There's a couple thoughts, and I want to share them just so you understand and don't think that there's some kind of conflict with the Bible. Uh, it's possible that David added this verse later as he was expressing the mercy that had been shown or as he was in review or recollection of the mercies that he'd been shown. He might have been overwhelmed and opened it with that line. That's a possibility. Another one, it could have been added by the collector of these psalms. Now hear me out. When they were adapted for worship within a public setting, it could have been easily a commencement of sorts. Um, it could have been words that related to David, uh, what he was conveying. It could have been words to uh, inspire or support what David was saying. But there's one thing that is absolutely true about this. There is one thing that is true here today, and not one of us can doubt it, that the words in this verse verse are the things that he attributed to God. They were designed to recount the mercies, the many, many mercies that David recalls when he focuses on the goodness of God in his experiences. I need you to know that. Real-life distress, real-life experiences, recollecting, if you will, all the memories and mercies that he attributes to God in these experiences. This is true for you and I today. This is true for you and I today. To speak the words, I love you, my Lord, or oh Lord, my strength. When we say those words, are we looking at the mercies that have been shown to us? Are we looking at how God has been to us in our past and our present? We all have a history. What does that look like from when we started to where we are this morning together? Mercy after mercy. And this is David expressing these very things, real life things in this text. What's really cool about understanding God's mercy and his goodness to us now and in the past, because we know it's true, we have a pattern, we have evidence, is that carries with us into the future. And that's where the glorious hope of being a believer lies. Now, let's talk about Israel for a second as we paint this picture so that we can really try to grasp what David is expressing. 
Israel has a very diverse topography. It really does. It's a very cool place. I mean, you know this little piece of real estate. People fought over it for years trying to conquer it, trying to take it. Okay, that place is in God's hands if you don't see the evidence there. But Israel has a wonderful topography. There are coastal plains. There's mountains. Um, of course, then there's valleys, right? There's the hill country, uh, forest, and there's even desert regions within the topography of this great country. Now, in all this, though, there are many, many natural rock formations, caves, okay, waterfalls. There's many uh, caverns and phenomena that stand out in the topography of this country. It's true. Features that David addresses in his text, the very features that he addresses. These are what I want to focus on today as David is declaring his dependence on God. I don't know if you read that in those three verses. In those three verses, David is literally declaring his dependence on God. See, he was seeking safety, especially, especially from Saul. He was seeking safety. I need you to picture that as we read this text. He was fleeing. He was escaping the danger that awaited him from his enemies. Protection is what David needed, and protection is what he found in the formation of God's creation. And herein lies the beauty of David's expressive thoughts that he puts into words. This is the beauty of this whole thing. He found the provision of protection and safety and the very features that God created. Let's talk about the rock. Lord is my rock. That's all throughout Scripture, right? We know about the rock. So many Christian songs have been written about the rock. It's stability, folks. You can stand on it and be secure. It's not only stability, it's security in the fact that it's an object of concealment. It is a hiding place. There are jagged rocks that stick out where you can hide and be safe. David found those rocks. The wilderness, the formation of God's creation became a fortress. If, when I say fortress, I don't know about you, I go straight to castles. You ever thought about castles, how they, you can defend yourself? Let's get back to the castle or let's get back to the fort, right? Modern day forts. It's a place of defense, then you have deliverer. That's the easy one. A deliverer is a rescuer. You're in danger, you're in trouble, someone helps, they take you out of that danger, he's a rescuer. And then a refuge. We know all about refuges. There's a lot of animal refuges and bird sanctuaries. Things where animals and particular uh, flora and fauna is protected, not to be dug up, not to be hunted. Right? Refuge is protection. The shield. Of course, we know a shield in battle. You're going to block a sword swing, right? You're going to block arrows shot at you. A shield. The horn. The horn is a mean of defense for an animal. Um, it's a source of its strength. And for us, it's an emblem of power and strength. And what's neat about this, <clears throat> one of the places David chose to hide from Saul uh, was a cave in an area called the Engadi. And I'm sure a lot of you know about this. The Engadi, this is where... Saul left his men and went to the mouth of the cave to relieve himself. He went to the bathroom. Little did he know, David and all his men were pressed up against the wall towards the back of this cave, hiding from that man. David literally walked up, and this is the story where he cut a piece of cloth off the robe. You guys know the story. And he showed evidence that, hey, I see, I know you belong to God. I wasn't here to kill you. Look, 
here's a piece of the road. He was convicted of that. So he called Saul and said, look. But this cave, this Engadi, this, this was, uh, the, it's called that because it's the spring of the goat. Spring of the kids, spring of the goat. So David literally saw all these different types of horned animals because it was one of the only water sources there. David knew to go there. God provided clean drinking water. God provided this cave to hide in. It was a place of refuge. It was a fortress for him. And the horns, it was a means of defense for an animal. And this is how David saw that. And then stronghold, this is my favorite one. The stronghold, it's like that last retreat. It's a place you run to. You go to it when you're in danger. It's a safe place that prohibits the reach of danger. Usually it's high and inaccessible. But a stronghold can be anything where your sides and back are covered, where you can fight forwards, right? It's a stronghold. It's a place we go for absolute protection. See, the idea here is that David attributed these natural things to God. This is where we're going. He attributed these natural things to God. God himself was the provision of safety for David. God himself was the designer of these natural features features that gave David the security that he needed, right? And this was during the time, uh, on, mainly on the run from Saul and all the armies that wanted to hurt him. See, Saul, uh, excuse me, David was not praising the rocks that he hid behind or the caverns or the caves that he hid in. David wasn't praising the mountain where Saul and all his men are on one side and he and his men are on the other, blocked by this mountain, getting away. He wasn't praising those things. No. David, for David, buddy, it was God and God alone who was his rescuer. It was God who was David's strength. So he says the Lord is in this text. Try to picture David on the run. The Lord is. And then he describes all the things that he attributed to God. So what? God was to David what the rocks are to someone who is looking to hide. God is to David what the fortress is to one who is looking for defense. God is to David what the deliverer is to someone who is being rescued. God is to David what refuge is to someone seeking safety. God is to David what the shield is to a soldier in battle. God is to David what the horn is to an animal. God is to David what a stronghold is to one who is escaping danger. This is what God is to David in all his struggles. And all of these are symbols of the invisible. See, what's about to happen here is a God thing, a miraculous thing. Did you notice the number of metaphors in this text. The number of metaphors is seven. Seven things. And seven is the number of perfection. David has just described his perfect deliverer in this text. Crowded together within these metaphors, we have the perfection of God as Savior as he attributes every one of those features to God. David will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Why? Because he experienced this in his past. He's experiencing it in his present. And he knows this will carry, this confidence, this trust in God will carry over into his future. This is why he says the Lord is worthy to be praised because he has discovered the perfect Savior. Perfection. So are we acknowledging the glorious perfection of God? 
Are you and I acknowledging this? With his almighty protection over us, are we acknowledging it like David did? Are we expressing this kind of practical confidence in God like David did? What about the features of your life? What about the topography, if you will? Men and women who believe in what the Bible says, if we truly believe, we too should be ascribing the rock, the refuge, the fortress, the shield, the horn, the stronghold to the perfect deliverer. That's what we should be doing. See, our perfect deliverer, who is worthy of all our praise and the reason we are saved, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of exactly what David was writing about in Psalm 18 and what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Perfect deliverer. <clears throat> that is manifested in Jesus Christ. So today I declare, I declare my dependence solely on Jesus. Because I can sit down, and I'd love for us, oh, I'd give you all pencil and paper, spread out across the church, and everybody write down mercy after mercy. Remember that song, count them one by one? Remember the mercies? All those wonderful things. If you were to write mercy after mercy after mercy that God has blessed you with, you too would begin to see a pattern here like David did. And you would see the evidence of the beauty of God's provision and safety. And what would you ascribe to God? Would it be your house? Your car? You know what I mean? Think about it. Let's do this. Everybody turn to Luke 8. Let's get a little workout today. Everybody turn to Luke 8. I'm listening to the pages, so whoever's last, I'm calling you out. Oh, some of you are doing digital. I can't call you out. Luke 8. This is a story you all know. It's a story about a, a demoniac. <clears throat> this particular man had many, many demons. We're going to talk about them. I want to clear something up. Uh, this is just a nugget for you to take with you. Uh, Matthew 8 presents two men. <clears throat> Where Luke and Mark, Luke 8 and Mark 5 present one man. There is no contradiction to the story if a skeptic comes up and says the Bible's wrong. There is no contradiction. Matthew talks about the two, shorter version. <clears throat> what Luke and Mark do is they're focusing on the one that was healed by Jesus, the one, um, <clears throat> if you will, if we have tunnel vision on the one, that he was healed by Jesus. That's why they talk about the one man. But I want to read Luke 8 to you, and I want to talk about it. Look at verse, uh, where are we at here? 26? Yeah. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there he met a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter there. So he gave them permission. 
Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right man, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. Let me stop right there for a sec. Jesus' disciples have left one area and come over to this area of the Gerasenes here. They're stepping out of the boat, and this man is running towards them. And Jesus says, come out of the man. First off, you have to understand what they saw. Because if you take all three texts, the man was naked. He was a cutter. So I'm sure there was cuts and there was blood. He was filthy. You had to know this man had to stink. He was filthy. He was bleeding. Um... I'm sure he looked like a madman. We, if we saw him walking down the street, we'd probably call the police. We'd enter our place of refuge, our house, and call the police. <clears throat> it was probably a scary sight. They tried to bind him. He broke chains. He broke shackles. He broke them into pieces. That's strength, folks. He ran around naked, which was a huge no-no in Jewish times. Huge no-no now. <clears throat> it was a horrible scene. But you see, the man was not in control. The demons were speaking, weren't they? They threw him to the ground as they cast him out, but they didn't come out yet. No, they were begging Jesus. First off, isn't it amazing how people will not identify Jesus as the Son of God, but the demons will? So here we have this man falling prostrate right in front of Jesus come out, and they start begging him, wait, wait, don't send us to the abyss. Now, this is a place of confinement for these demons where God will deal with them in the future. And they said, don't send us there. Send us, look, right over there on that hill, there's a bunch of pigs. We'll go over there. Before they left, Jesus gave them permission. People missed that. Gave them permission. So they entered these pigs, right? And the pigs, I guess they were spooked. We don't know. We can speculate. The pigs were spooked when these things entered them. Because what happened? They took off running down this long hill and then into this water and they drowned. Was it God's sovereign choice that these pigs go? Was he sending them to the abyss anyways, regardless? Were they going somewhere else? We don't know. What spooked the pigs? Was it the demons? Was it something? We don't know. Because that's not the point of the story. People are into that part of the story though, aren't they? 2,000 pigs taken off after demons say they want to enter them? That's pretty cool. But that's not the point. The point was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was about to clean house. He was standing in front of this man, and they knew they had to go. They couldn't stay there. Folks, I don't know how many demons were in that man, but there were around 2,000 pigs. A legion is about 6,000 men. I'm not going to tell you a number because I don't know the number, but I'm going to tell you it was a lot, and I'm going to tell you it terrifies me if I ask someone's name and they tell me their name is Legion. See, God was about to redeem this man and there was no room for these guys. So they left. That's the point of the story. And look at this next verse. Look at this verse here. Uh, 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. And Jesus, here we go. We got someone begging. 
Jesus, please let me be with you. But Jesus sent him away saying this, return to your home and listen, declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how Jesus, or excuse me, what Jesus had done for him. Think about this for a second now. Let me explain this dependence. You have a man that is so far gone, a madman with multiple demons named Legion, who breaks chains, who breaks shackles. There are no restraints. People are terrified. He lives among the tombs. He's naked, he's bleeding, he's scary. You can't even cross that way for fear of running into this man. There was no hope for this man. No one could help him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ steps on this shore, okay, and the events start to unfold. There was no hope for this man. They were controlling his body. They were controlling the speech. And all of a sudden, Jesus redeems this man, heals him, thus saving him. And now he's sitting at the feet. And we should really picture this for us. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, begging to be with him. Do we do that? Think about your Lord and Savior. Do we come to him and just beg to be with him. He's clean inside. Maybe not outside yet, but he is clean and clothed. He's clothed when people come out and he's in his right mind and he's begging Jesus. And you get that? He's in his right mind still begging Jesus, please let me be with you. But Jesus doesn't say that. He goes, no, 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 no. Today you are going to make a declaration of dependence. Today is your declaration of dependence. I want you to declare how much God has done for you. See, attributing and ascribing all things back to him. If there's a tornado, which we had a while back, you guys remember, sometimes hurricanes come, bad weather, do we stand outside? No, we take refuge. We go in our homes. It's a place of refuge. It's a place of protection. For us, it's a fortress. Would you agree with that? How many times have you had to get away in a car? Maybe you're traveling to the hospital as fast as you can because you can get there before someone's last dying breath. Or maybe someone just had a baby and you're rushing. Maybe you have to get out of town quickly. That car becomes a source of refuge. It could be a stronghold even in times of need. Are we attributing, ascribing all the things back to God? Are we declaring our dependence? Or, yes, I'm adding an or. Are we de uh, declaring our codependence? Well, yeah, God help, but this car is fast. God help, but I bought this house. I made it extra strong. Are we attributing and ascribing the things in our life, the topography, the features that God has provided? Are we, are we giving that back to him and declaring our full dependence? Because that is exactly what David did in the Old Testament in this psalm in 2 Samuel. This is what he did by looking at these features. He described the perfect deliverer and then this man over here in the new testament who was out of his mind demon full right no room for anything else here he is collapsing at the feet of jesus begging him to go he found also the manifestation of what david was talking about in real life form in jesus christ who was his perfect deliverer both david and this man we don't know his name both of these people declared their dependence on God. They went and declared what God had done for them. So what's the proper response for you and I? We celebrate 4th of July, and we are celebrating a declaration of independence, and that's wonderful to be independent of another country, 
to be free and to be new, it's wonderful. But do we understand that newness and freedom in Jesus Christ, who is our perfect deliverer, who we should be declaring dependence? That's the thing. What's the proper response? Praise, delight, thanksgiving. Oh, we should be smiling ear to ear. Joy should be oozing out of us. What happens then? Trust. This is the beauty of David's text, trust and obedience, because we have what's happened, and now we have it in the present. God, I mean, listen, God, what he's done for you, that carries over into your future. Like, there should not be a sad face in here at all. We should be able to start letting go of things that have been hindering us. We should be able to start letting go of things that are oppressing us, because you were made new. You are free in the perfect salvation of the perfect deliverer. So we should be living life to its fullest and declaring our dependence on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are all grateful. We are all grateful for who you are. Lord, we can study this word, and we can study this word, and we can read it every day and every night. And every word that jumps out at us, Father, is perfection. We know who you are. We know you are our rock. We know you're our fortress. You are the ultimate deliverer of all. We see it in David's life, and we saw it in the demoniac's life, Father. We see it. You are the stronghold, the horn of salvation. You are everything to us. Father, as we live our lives every day, let us come to you in this practical confidence, this practical trust, and declare our full dependence on you. You tell us that we can do nothing without you. Let us live that. Father God, we are going to have a wonderful day together. We're going to be eating and having fun later. We're going to be leaving here and getting lunch. Lord, spending time with loved ones and family. But my prayer today, Lord, is when we leave this building, when we exit this parking lot, we are looking at our lives, counting the mercies, all of them, and attributing everything back to you because it's you who deserves the praise and glory. David said it. You are worthy to be praised. Let us praise you. Let us glorify you. Let us see the wonderful things that you have done for us throughout our life, and let us count them all and give them right back to you, Father. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the Psalms, Father. We thank you for the Gospels. We thank you that we can look at two different versions of the perfect deliverer, Father, and know that that's exactly who lives in our hearts. Lord, we are grateful. We love you, and we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.